when I'm dealing with people or talking with people, I want to operate in a spirit of truth. I want to operate and treat people from a place of security, well-being, dignity, and respect. That every life matters. Every human is made in the image of God. Not just every human, all of creation is part of God. So I want to treat my creation well. I want to treat the land well. I want to treat the waters well. I want to treat every person I touch, people of a different religion, people of a different ethnicity, people of a different uh, sexual orientation, people of a different gender, whoever, I want to treat them with security, dignity, well-being, and respect. And when I'm watching things that are violating those things, what do I do? Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Today on the podcast, we welcome William Matthews. William is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, advocate, and speaker who has toured around the world and has written and recorded multiple number one chart topping songs. His newest album, Cosmos, is on pre-order May 24th and releases worldwide in late June. He is a sought-after advocate and voice on racism and climate change. This was one of my favorites so far, and I'm, honestly, it was vulnerable for me, uh, and you, you will learn why when you get into this. I did not expect it to go where it went, but he and I had a, a fascinating uh interaction that um, honestly has has launched me in a new direction of growth that was much needed and he's just he's wicked smart but what a good gracious empathetic human who I cannot wait to share with you all yes he was on the top of my list of people that I wanted um, to get to interview on this podcast so what a joy and a treat it is to get to share with you guys our friend William Guys, this is my new friend, William yes. Matthews. You're the first actual interview that wasn't someone that we already knew and wasn't oh, a pal. Wow. So this is a little bit different. And well, thank you for having me. So oh we're gonna we're officially adopting you as our friend. Yeah, you have officially been collected. We we're hope not you're not letting you go. Yeah, we hope you're on board. Yeah, right, okay. I'm you're here. stuck with us. Sorry about it. I'm here for but this. But not. I'm not at all. But. I heard you speak on the Liturgist podcast, the episode called Black and White, Racism in America. And I was driving home from Thanksgiving last year and heard it for the first time and was, I mean, shook. Like, it's not, it's not like all of it was brand new information, but the way that y'all put it in such a precise light. And I also felt deep conviction by the words that y'all spoke. And I just instantly, I, I've probably listened to it at least five times. I've, I've sent it out to more people. I've like posted about it. Like I, I feel like it's some of the most important content out there and wow. important content out there, especially for people that look like me. Hmm. So this feels like such an honor to get to share this space with you today. So thank you so much for being here. 
You're welcome. I appreciate meeting you. We have some mutual friends, yeah. Jedediah. Jedediah, love him. Uh, yeah, and so I've actually been following you on Instagram for a while because I've seen you on Jedediah's page, and I'm like, who is this girl? <laughs> She's amazing. Aww. Like, just beautiful work. Your art Thank is you. brilliant, Thank lively. You. It really calls and awakens something in people. Like, oh. like you bring hope to people. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you really do. And so I'm happy to be here, too. That's Thank why instantly when I, when I got the – she slid in my DMs, y'all. She slid <laughs> I didn't know when I DMs. did that that you followed me. I, I, yeah. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I, did, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm this rando girl. But please <laughs> come be on our podcast. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's funny because that podcast – you know, at the time, it started out as an actual conversation between the four of us. Yeah. And we were, the liturgist had done a gathering um, in L.A. a couple of years ago. And I was, I'm just friends with Michael Gunger. I hadn't even met Science Mike and uh, at that point. Maybe it was three years ago. And after the event they did in downtown L.A., me, Propaganda. Oh, I love Michael Prop. Gunger. Yeah. And Science Mike, we all just started this conversation about race and we were it was just flowing for about 30 40 minutes and then i think it was michael or science mike went stop we got to record this wow <laughs> what are, what are you guys doing tomorrow next day like can we, this feels very important yes. and we should all just yes. get together and do this so turns out a couple of days later they texted us they said hey come through propaganda came made some drinks <laughs> yes. and then we just like sat in their room and just had mm. that conversation so mm. it it was very natural yeah. it felt like something poured out of us that mm. hadn't i think at that time been part of public discourse at least you know a lot of us come out of strong christian evangelical circles right. and so to be a person of color uh particularly inside of white evangelicalism yeah. like you you don't get a voice or mm. your experience doesn't isn't valued mm. or only, as long as your experience you know condones the status quo or reinforces the status quo yeah. then you're valued but if you have an alternative narrative to whatever the script is, then you often don't get heard. So that mm. podcast for me was kind of like a coming out party in terms of, mm. hey, here's been my experience yeah. uh, being black inside of mostly white evangelical churches in America. Mm. And I think the honesty of that was beautiful. It was also really painful. Sure. And I actually you know, think that it even created some rifts in certain relationships yeah. uh, because you know, I don't think everyone values that experience. Yeah. And so... It's amazing because the podcast has, I think it has well over like six, seven million v- listens. Wow. Um, last I heard. It shook me. Wow. Shook me. Like it felt so convicting, mm. important, eye-opening, challenging. Mm. And it changed a person. Like I would consider myself a very liberal, you know, um, open person and it really the conviction of like, just because I can speak about these things and, but by not speaking out necessarily mm-hmm. or not changing, like I, a lot of my friends look a whole lot like me. Hmm. So one thing that is a part of my story, that's kind of a crazy thing. Um, so I grew up in a very small town and our dances were segregated hmm. And when I was in 11th grade, I started going So the black dances were at school and the white dances were off campus. And when I was in 11th grade, I started going to the dance at school and, and that went okay. That went well, that went over fine. And then when I was a senior in high school, I started asking my friends to come with me to the off campus dance. And on the first time 
it was a ruckus mm. and parents were just out of their minds. What upset. year is this? 1997. You're telling me in 1997 in yes. your small town, yes. not only were the dances segregated, but when they tried to become integrated, yep. it was a problem. I was called in lover by grown ups. I'd gone to church with my whole life. Wow. It was, but here's where, like, I knew that I was doing the right thing. I knew that. But I also grew up in a family where elders, you respect your elders, no Absolutely. matter what, they have the ultimate authority. Mm. My dad, if someone was 10 years older than him, he'd say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, to anyone mm -hmm. older than him, you know? So that was ingrained in me more than anything else is respect of elders. And all of a sudden, these adults who had always been like, charm like they loved me you know and all of a sudden these grown-ups were calling me these names and didn't like me and that crushed me even though I knew I was right it crushed me and I led with like I came back to school and I didn't at the time I have since but like I didn't even talk to my friends about it hmm. I was more concerned at the time with how upsetting it was to me that I was being called those things and how freaking hmm horrific of an experience that must have been for my 16 and 17 year old friends mm -hmm. to be told to leave somewhere mm. like and I like um like it just like breaks my heart and I've like gotten to talk to a bunch of those friends and I mean they've been they've covered me with more grace than I've you know but it's like so I mean that's that is what I grew up around you know and it was just I don't know. It brought up a lot of, and I got to go to the Richard Rohr conference last year Ooh. and it was so good. And on one of the last nights they had, um, I can't remember the lady's name. She was amazing. She's a pastor in New York and her, she's African-American, her husband's white and she spoke and it was incredible. And she's like, you know, I want to ask everyone of color to come to the front of the room. Was it Christina Cleveland? Maybe she's hilarious and might have been her. I think. I'll find I feel out. Like, yeah. I'm not positive. I'm the worst with I me. think I saw her in a conference with Roar. So I, I yeah, think that in August. Her. Yeah. And she's like, everyone of color to come up in the front of the room. And I want to do a fishbowl moment. And I want to have the conversation that we have when there aren't white people around. <sighs> it was one of the most powerful experiences I've probably ever experienced. It was the most raw, honest, yep. convicting, yep. important. Like one guy... Um, his name is George. He was like, he didn't say much, but when he spoke, you like leaned in mm -hmm. and he said, he just, he, he was silent. All of a sudden he goes, we say y'all don't give a f about us. Hmm. And I was just like, whoa. And like gutted, you yeah. know, he's like, this is a group of very evolved liberal. He's like, how many friends that do you have that don't look like you think like you talk like you like that? How many do you have ever for dinner? Hmm. You know? And he's like, there are so many problems happening. Like my boys, I'm scared for. Yeah. And it's like just being dismissed. Well, a couple of things just kind of struck me about your experience, right? The, uh, the thing about white supremacy, it doesn't just hurt and devalue black and brown bodies. It also oppresses white bodies too. Yes. Whether as the role of the oppressor or, or white folk who try to to be peacemakers or, or bridge like there's a you know and i think we're seeing it right now with the parkland teens we're seeing white supremacy attack 
other affluent white children for being intersectional and, you know, and bringing gun violence in general to the forefront, but also, you know, uh, raising the issue of intersectionality with with the black and brown communities and, and gun violence and bringing those activists to the forefront. Like the, the demonization we're seeing right now with those children is just a byproduct of the myth mm-hmm. of superiority and inferiority mm-hmm. that we've all just believed. Like racism is just an idea. Mm. It's not actually an emotion. Mm. The emotion comes along in the reinforcement of the idea, but racism is, is an idea built on the myth of white superiority and black inferiority. Mm. It's an ancient lie. It's an old lie yeah. that the old world was telling and that we still somehow play right. into and believe in, whether in tiny little microaggressive ways or in massive uh, physically violent mm. ways or systemic ways. And so I just think it, it's interesting that white supremacy will even shut up other white people to mm. say, how dare you? Hmm. Don't you do that? Don't you say that? Right. And so then it's like in that experience, I could imagine you shutting down and you saying for fear of like, you know, uh, being out of the tribe, you know, or disrespecting the tribe, the elders. uh, Like you said, you know, you then start to feel like in your body because of the trauma and the shame of that, like I can't speak or I can't or I shouldn't speak or I shouldn't listen to those people. And so it sounds to me like you've you've been on a journey of of unwinding. Yeah even before um, the black and white episode that you've been on this journey of unwinding or unlearning patriarchy and unlearning those values from the small tribe that you had in order to now. So you were in a place to even be open Mm -hmm. to hear and see and feel. Um, But think how many other people are not. Mm. They're still in their limited framework. Mm. You know, they're still believing the lie. And it's funny about the lie is we don't talk about the lie. Right. And I loved what y'all said in the podcast. We're like, this conversation needs to happen with white, like white people like need to s- start having mm-hmm. this conversation. Yes. Because sadly, sadly, so often people just shut out. They're like, that's just an angry black man. Yeah. And it's like. As if anger's bad. Right. As like, if Jesus, your Lord and Savior, fact. wasn't angry at times. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> They've not heard that, that podcast that you're talking about. And I'm, I can the first thing I do when I walk out of here is listen to it because it sounds like it was incredibly impactful and I think I could use it personally which I'll share with you in Mm -hmm. a a bit but I would love especially around I want to come back to complicity yeah but you said um, that it was personally painful for you being an artist a Christian artist Mm -hmm. and you experienced being you didn't use the word marginalized you maybe not heard yeah I would love to hear maybe a little bit about the personal experience and what that pain was like so even going back, because it, it intersects with her point about being in the Richard Rohr conference, you know, and hearing a conversation, you know, in a fishbowl, right, where black people were speaking in a real honest way. Yeah. I know that the majority of human beings are very well-intentioned people. Everyone wants to do good. I think we're actually wired to do good. We talk often in church circles about how, you know, we're sinful and <laughs> we were born with this original sin thing. But actually, I, th- I think we're more wired for good. I think bad mm-hmm. can happen, but I, I think we're we're wired for goodness. We're wired to to love and mm. to yes. embrace. Um, I think that's truthful. I think when you are in a system that holds an ideal as the supreme ideal, anything that seems to be in direct contradiction to that ideal is suppressed, if shared, not listened to, or not put on an equal weight mm. as the ideal. Mm. So for me, being... Um, black and mostly white evangelical churches in my adult life, my entire adult life. So I grew up in a black church. 
my dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a minister. Mm. I have aunts and uncles that are ordained ministers. I come from a lineage within a black church tradition called the Church of God that I grew up in. And it wasn't until I was 18, 19 that I even started going to churches that weren't black Mm. and started doing worship music and started leading worship and then writing worship music um, and getting around other worshiping communities. So a lot of the well-known Christian artists in the worship world, I mean, I was coming up with them even before they were all famous. I can tell you a lot of the songs that have been on top of the charts and won Grammys. I I remember who wrote it, where they wrote it, some of the songs I was in the room for. Um, And my experience was often a lot of well-intentioned people who had not had experiences outside of their own cultural norms. And when anything would be brought up that contradicted the worldview, Mm. you get shut down. You get told, like you just said a moment ago, uh, you're just angry. Mm. As if the anger doesn't have 400 years of history to to justify it in the, in the past and the present. Um, Or, you know, you're just not, you're just being a victim. And these you know? are messages that you got. These were very pointed messages. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to do a, a good job not to name names and dates and places. I'm not that petty. <laughs> but, uh, it, I mean, I remember being told, um, you know, police brutality is not a thing. That's just a, a media creation, you know, that people are making up. Black people are just, you know, bitter because they're not financially ahead. Like white people, they don't work hard enough. They're lazy. Mm-hmm. I was told in very direct and, and also indirect ways that almost like black culture is immoral, like somehow like deeply immoral. And, you know, um, and black people are just bought and sold by Democrats. Therefore, mm-hmm. you know, um, forgetting the whole history of civil rights and, and why the black majority votes Democrat purely for the basis of voting rights and what the Democrats did for them and Lyndon Johnson being told very directly as long as well with, you know, uh, very overt racial slurs. And you got those two. Of course. What did the, what did that pain feel like? Like what's the emotion underneath the, I think it feels like all trauma feels like it feels distancing. It feels like you can't trust yourself. So if I'm black in a primarily white world, there's a dominant script that's happening that whether people realize they're a part of this dominant script, it's happening. Um, and so I've known that alienation my entire life. Being black in America is to feel that type of alienation in the broader sense of culture. Yeah. Now, in the in the small parts of culture where your tribe and your family or your black church, you're, you might go to all black school, which I've gone to those two. I've gone to all white schools and all black schools. The most solidarity and hope I ever found was in community surrounded by other black yeah. people. Um, but you're instantly growing up feeling a bit alienated. And when you, um, when I feel alienated, finish that sentence. When I feel alienated, me personally, um, I withdraw and yeah. I go inward Yeah. and I don't assert myself and mm. I don't speak up. Um, mm. and so, and then the times like your experience, uh, Ruthie, like where you speak up and then you're like slapped down, mm. you know, you're like, okay, I, to survive, I can't speak up mm. to survive. I can't challenge the status quo. Um, so it's easier to be complicit than to speak up but something changed Mm. i would say 2012 on it's when uh you know the shooting of trayvon martin Mm. there was something about that one out of all the times i mean police brutality growing up i mean i had the the talk right you know with you know you have black parents and they (laughs) tell you listen you can't talk to the police like you know like everybody else can or, or you need to be very you know, and I think most Americans will have that talk with their child, but in black communities, it's a bit extra. Sure. Like you have to be even more on guard yeah. because of this racial bias that exists. That's part of the way a good parent will prepare you for the world. That's yeah. what my mom and dad did. And so there was something about police brutality had always been happening. Mass incarceration was happening. Yes. I, I had a family member incarcerated for way too long just for being in the room with somebody who had drugs. And the judge said, I'm going to make you 
an example to the hood. Like, mm. don't even be, you know, and next thing you know, you're in jail for, they're just locking, locking you away for like 10 plus years just for being in the room. Mm. All sorts of like inequities in the justice system, criminal, like we were experiencing that on the ground for the, you know, the 70s, 80s and 90s black culture was. So fast forward to 2012, Trayvon Martin and the shooting of it was kind of like an enough is enough moment mm. for the black community of going, why do we think we have the right to just take this life? Yeah. Why, you know, for being black, for wearing a hoodie. And that's when I started questioning everything, because for a long time I was very I was complicit. Mm. I was very assimilated into white evangelical culture. You know, I was knew it because you were making your living off of it. Yeah, I was making my living off of it. I'm writing songs. Is you there, know, is I'm there traveling. not a, a well commercial known. music industry in the black church? There is. I just didn't do gospel music. Okay. So, because because gospel music is very much a, a particular style and yeah, vein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, as much as I love black church and can sing soulfully, I wasn't. I never felt like I was a gospel artist. Mm. And also, I I loved worship music, like uh, more kind of the, the vertical, like style of uh, worship music. So that's how I, I started. I got in the industry and okay. started writing. And so that's when I started trying to have conversations with my white friends about it. And that did not go good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, what I began to realize was something James Baldwin talks about uh, in his writings, as well as uh, the film, I'm Not Your Negro. You should watch that, by the way. Okay. Uh, it's a, Raul Peck did a documentary last year. It was nominated for an Oscar. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. One of the most beautiful documentaries I've ever seen. Um, and it's about the life in the history of James Baldwin, who is a, um, an author, a fiction author and a civil rights uh, activist. And he kind of commemorated because he knew personally Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Megger Evers, and he knew them personally. So he would come and like he would write about. Yeah, he was brilliant. And one of the wow. most brilliant public intellectuals that ever existed in America. But um, James Baldwin talked about uh, the two narratives in America, the white dominant narrative and the black experience. And he said, neither of these have had genuine confrontation. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things we were experiencing or I was experiencing in a, in this particular situation that I was in being, you know, a black worship leader who's primarily leading worship for white evangelicals was a genuine history that the majority of my friends had never even heard right. or reckoned with or, you know, because white supremacy hands you down a legacy that says this about those people right. mm. or, or about our own collective history. Like there was not even a lot of truth telling about right. our history. I mean, I would get told by friends, you know, that, that the Irish were more slaves than, you know, black people were right. You know, uh, yeah. Like why did, I wonder, you know, when you tried to engage these, like you're saying, Trayvon, I found my voice mm -hmm. and I'll first, my first reaction was to speak to my white friends about it and it didn't go well. Yeah. Why do you think it didn't go well? Several things. I think there's a lot of fear, obviously, around uh, issues of identity. We see that on any level, right, in our society. There's fear around LGBT people and their identity. There's fear around people of color. There's fear around people of a different religion, particularly Islam. Like, there's fear around what you don't know. But mm -hmm. I say that fear, though, isn't just an existential threat. It's based on an ideology. It's based on an idea that that the other is dangerous, the other yeah. is wrong, the other is bad. That other. Other. <laughs> the us versus them. Yeah. So a lot of people are just bought into us versus them in general. Like mm -hmm. we're kind of, you know, there's something in our like tribal nature <laughs> that just, you know, we're wired for both, you know, the good and the bad. Like we have both going on. The other piece of it too was the construct of whiteness as an identity. I don't think in my experience of being around white people, I don't think they've thought very thoroughly of who of their identity mm -hmm. for the most part. You might I have some white friends that are very much like I'm Italian. 
or we're German, or we're this, or we're that. And that has a history, a lineage, uh, a legacy for them. But a lot of people that even claim that when they when their ancestors came to America, they assimilated into this idea of whiteness. And what whiteness was as a construct historically was used as a way to economically uh, dominate blacks mm-hmm. and to exploit those on the lesser rungs. So even in, in white culture or in in America, there was always a hierarchy even right within, uh, you know, the Irish were and the Catholics were like on the lower rung, right? And they yeah. had to kind of... But, but the construct of whiteness was very much like leave behind your European ethnicity and just be white, be Caucasian, mm-hmm. whatever this is. And if we do that, we can get ahead. Mm. And so whiteness as a construct, which I think the majority of white Americans believe in their own personhood or identity is not a real thing. It's not a real ethnicity. They come from different, many different places. Yeah. And they for, threw off their cultural identity to become white. To challenge white supremacy or to challenge racism or, or to even ask the question of racism is for white people very fundamentally, many of them that do not have a cultural legacy outside of the American context or, or a connection to that, it is like telling them the ground they walk on is not a floor. Yeah, And it, for them, it feels like a free fall. Wait, so you're telling me everything I've ever come to believe isn't true about myself? Mm. Which which your brain goes into reptile mode then and it's yep. survival. Because that's what I'm trying to strip it back a little bit. One, personally, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But two is I, I still think overall conversations that we try to have with black and white um, don't go well now. Yeah, I wonder if there's a way that we... That's why I kept saying, what's the anchor emotion underneath the fear and pain that you experience? Because mm-hmm. I think emotion speaks a different language than ideology. And I'm hoping that empathy can come before, um, I, I'm just trying to figure it out. Because, and yeah. back to the personal reason, I think I, I have been and am a little complicit. And I'd love to hear your definition of that. And it might help me understand. This might end up being an intervention on me a little bit. <laughs> it, and I, I'm okay with that, to be honest, um, because I, I grew up in an all-white community, very mm-hmm. small town, um, had one black friend. Um, there was really only two in my entire class. And I, um, and there was a lot of racism. I was exposed to it. And I still see it, experience it. I don't really speak out about it. Um, which I think would be complicit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think we all in general as human beings have to constantly check places where we have privilege and places where we're being complicit with whatever the status quo is, right? And so it is very human oftentimes to bow down to group pressure and fear and to not have the internal fortitude and moral courage to take a stand for just what is right or for basic human dignity, well-being, and respect. Mm. So... For me, theologically speaking, you know, I believe that truth, uh, I define it the way Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, he defines truth as a cluster of relationships of dignity, well-being, security, and respect. Hmm. So to me, that is truth. When I'm dealing with people or talking with people, I want to operate in the spirit of truth. Hmm. I want to operate and treat people from a place of security, well-being, dignity, and respect. Hmm. That every life matters. Every human is made in the image of God. Not just every human, all of creation is part of God. So I want to treat my creation well. I want to treat the land well. I want to treat the waters well. I want to treat every person I touch, people of a different religion, people of a different ethnicity, people of a different uh, sexual orientation, uh, people of a different gender, whoever. I want to treat them with security, dignity, well-being, and respect. And when I'm watching things that are violating those things, Mm. what do I do? Do I I say something? Is it appropriate to say something? Um, 
me and Science Mike actually talked the other day about uh, we were interviewing Jen Hatmaker and we talked about he was talking about from a brain perspective, oftentimes what happens. So if you're in a situation, you're, you know, feel like you need to confront a loved one because they're, you know, uh, you know, Uncle George is saying that racist bullshit, he says, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, Aunt Susan is, you know, she's talking about those Muslims again. You know, he said from a brain perspective in that moment, if you can find a way to, you know, because that thing will come, you'll get flushed. You'll feel like, oh, that's, ugh, ugh. Yeah. You'll feel that and you're like, that's wrong. Like, that's not right to say that about I those people. I don't feel right about being here. I don't feel right yeah. about being quiet. Exactly. Mm. He said it's in that moment when another, one mammal speaking to another mammal, basically. Yep. When when you're able to channel that in constructively, even if there's anger attached to it in the moment, he said there's more receptivity to change because there's something that happens in the other person's body when they see what that does for you. Yeah. So like when they see that something they said viscerally moved you in a negative sense and you're able to communicate that in a loving way back to them, mm. but they can still like not just see the emotion, but feel the emotion. Uh, he was like, that. that's a key opportunity um, in people's psyche where they're actually open to and more receptive to listen to what you have to say, even beyond like, points or rightness of belief um, around those things, but the visceral reaction. So I think it's important to, in those moments say, and I I have to do this even, you know, with my own family at times and, you know, because there's been a little bit against white people, a lot, you know, sometimes people of other religions, sometimes people of different sexual orientations. And I've had to make a practice to learn to say, Hey, aunt so-and-so that's not right. Hmm. You can't say that about gay people. It's not right. You can't say that. Or you can, you know, not all Muslims are this. You can't, you can't do that. And and I've noticed doing that boundary with mm. them, I've seen them step up a little bit and go, mm. "You're right. Maybe I am thinking of that in a wrong way, or thinking about those people differently." Yeah. I don't um, know why. I just feel like sometimes I, we talk about it a lot. Meaning Leslie, I kind of senior project coordinator. We we're together all the time, so we talk about it in my company. Uh, mm. We talk about who it is that we serve and why it's mostly white and how do we change that. Mm. We talk about our staff and and I I just don't feel often that I speak up enough or do enough. And sometimes it's out of it's not out of the compassion of my heart. I want to do something. I don't think I ever sit in front of people who've been impacted enough mm-hmm. that say, "Here's my pain." I work yeah. with trauma survivors for a living, so the fact okay. that you called it trauma spoke deeply to me. Yes, racial and, racial terror is a trauma. Yeah, uh, in America, uh, it's a real. It's funny we don't, we don't think about it in terms of how Black people collectively are walking around with PTSD. Yes. Um, we'll think about it for victims of or uh, veterans of war, but we don't think about it in terms of uh, the th- the threat alone, psychologically speaking, of racial trauma, is enough to cause you to yes. <laughs> to live in such high stress, fear, fear. Like yes. it's it, what it, the fear of it. I, I've even read studies about this with uh, you know LGBT people where they've talked about how st- even before uh, marriage equality happened, how states that uh, remember when Clinton had the. Uh, the Defense Against Marriage Act and, you know, like, which was kind of basically was was a type of hetero supremacy there <laughs> of saying, like, we are standing on this, you know, whatever. States, particularly where governors did some sort of defense against marriage thing, they saw dramatic spikes in the stress <laughs> of, of LGBT people, even though no mm-hmm. real policy had changed uh, towards them or whatever. But the fear of it created higher depression, higher suicide rates. So racial trauma or racial terror is a trauma that has been perpetuated for generations. And so even think of Holocaust victims, right? I've, I've read studies about how oh, the, yeah. the children of Holocaust 
victims, the children, the people who didn't even live through it. Generational trauma. Yes. Are carrying a, a type of stigma and trauma of course they are. that is almost greater than, yeah. yeah. I'm, cur- I'm curious for the audience that, so here I'm white man, atypical white man, except, and we're sitting here having a conversation mm-hmm. and I'm disclosing that I think I have been complicit mm-hmm. at times. I don't think I am as much anymore because I'm really leaning in and I'm becoming more, more uncomfortable every day, I think, especially with the current climate. Yeah. So I feel like I'm pushing through to a healthier place of mm-hmm. finding my voice, uh, to, to be able, but what w- you said it didn't historically, I've tried to talk to my white friends and it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. If this were to go well, what would that look like? How, so I'd love for other people to get an imprint of this. Yeah. Is a, this okay. And I'll give my, I'll even give some of my white friends credit. Um, it took time. Some of them have fully come around and, and have recognized things were wrong. Things are wrong. Oftentimes, the one-on-one conversation might not be the breakthrough. It creates a seed. And then yeah. down the line, why do I keep talking to my black friends and they feel this way? Why do I keep talking to this other group and they feel, are we doing something wrong? Wait, is maybe there's something to what they're saying. So right now, that's important. I feel uncomfortable. Like I feel yeah. anxious because yeah. I'm afraid I'm like, I'm, I don't feel like I'm sure there are some people way more intellectual about the topic. Mm-hmm. And I want to have this vulnerable conversation with you. I love I feel that like you're doing this by the way. And I, it's very vulnerable. Like mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And so, ah, uh, man, I wish I had, uh, there's a, a couple of my white friends who talk about this, uh, this guttural reaction that happens in them when this conversation happens. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak speak to that because I, I don't know it I'm not a white male um, but the white males that I do know that talk about this um, I think just there's a de- this defensiveness that rises up in you when you feel attacked or you feel like something I don't even think it's always cognitive right like I think sometimes there's something in you that where you, from where you come from and how you grew up that feels like in reaction to hmm. this hmm. and instead of thinking i'm right they're wrong let me show them why they're wrong that's when you listen that's when you lean back which is what you're doing and saying you know what i'm gonna own that i feel anxious in this moment i'm gonna own that i feel out of place or disoriented i feel disoriented i feel scared i feel scared because i I feel sad and scared because one i i don't i want to i feel powerless powerless that's it i feel powerless yeah powerless to change it and also powerless towards the experience of these people or also powerless like i'm gonna lose power if i let them have power and i think the origins of what you're helping me discover are what keeps me from having more of these conversations Mm. yep absolutely it's what stops all of us from having that because it's how how do we deal with pain where does it hurt Mm. why does it hurt yeah where's that little boy or girl in you that experienced trauma and shut down ruthie right like where i i spoke up for truth and i I integrated my school dances and I got shut down and now it hurts. When I even think about race, it hurts. So I don't want to have that conversation or I don't want to press in for greater understanding of someone who has a different life experience than me or someone who also challenges my view of the meritocracy of the world. Like I think, well, people just work hard. They'll just always get ahead. And the world's fair in that way. Like we're all starting from the same place. Right. And that's something I've often find ingrained in white culture too, is this view of meritocracy that, well, we're all equal, right? Like we all just, well, if you just work hard enough, it doesn't matter. Just, just get over it. I've had hard things. Why can't you just get over it? Mm. 
Because if for some reason you life didn't hand you deal with you fairly, that shakes up my whole concept of right and wrong. Mm. That shakes up, well, the good people win and the bad people don't, which is a kind of fundamental way in which we operate and move ourselves in the world, right? That if I just work hard enough, my dreams will all come true. Mm. Not realizing that maybe I hold a position of privilege and power in the world that allows my dreams to come true more than others that who don't look I, like me. I think that's, that's right. the sadness that I feel yeah. bubbling up is that I, it's, it's unfair that um, I'm clumsy with this conversation and I want permission. Um, feel free to be clumsy. For somebody. I'm, I'm giving like, you permission. I know you <laughs> are. And I can tell by your disposition. I, somebody like you to, I don't, I'm so scared of saying something dumb like I've heard other people say in the media or the press or in mm-hmm. leadership and they say things and I can hear it and I can, I can feel the pain I would feel if I were in your shoes. It's like, oh. And yet there's this little part of me that thinks I'm not knowledgeable enough to have this conversation and I may do the same. And how sad of a reality that I have to tiptoe around something that's been suppressed for as long as it have. That's the sadness I feel. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm more empathetic right now instead of theoretic about this issue. That's good. Yeah. Also, it's hard when giving over power, and this is what we have to do in this dialogue, which is hard. And I, I really applaud your courage to own all those things troubling emotions instead of suppressing them or just pretending yeah. um I bringing them to the surface. <laughs> i help people do that for a living so we're <laughs> yeah. reversing roles right now yeah yeah okay bright so so to allow another person to share their experience which challenges your experience is giving over power i think a lot of our problems come from and you talked about people in the media or whatever is people hold having opinions and being strong and speaking up about those opinions, but those opinions are not rooted in any sort of experience with other people. Mm. Or they're not rooted in the experience of our collective history. Like knowing the history of America, not just the revisionist history, right. of, you know, parts of America. The Civil War wasn't about slavery. What are you talking <laughs> about? You know, like just all that stuff. People, I grew up in the South. You you know, you, you live in the South. Like I, that was a culture shock in and of me at 12 years old, moving yeah. from Detroit, Michigan, which is primarily black, to Raleigh, North Carolina mm. in 1993. Yeah. That was a culture shock. Oh, wow. Dear God. I saw, <laughs> that's where I first said, oh, the Confederate flag. That's on on the backs of people's trucks. That's when I'm being, you know, people were, trucks were driving by yelling out the N-word when I'm walking home from school. Yeah. In 1993, four, five, six, seven, like that to me speaks of a a history we're not telling the truth about. Mm. And I primarily find that white people are not telling the truth you know, about. And this is the last thing I'll own because I want to make sure we continue to move into other parts of the conversation. But I keep having insights about my own process. And one of which that I need to own is that if I really dig down into this discomfort right now, mm. it's not so much that I don't empathize with racism in general. I think we'd probably agree more than we differ. It's that I have fear of what my tribe, my people will think about me once mm. they hear because I'm socially liberal, I'm fiscally conservative, I'm kind of a political mutt, you know, mm-hmm. um, and all my friends are progressive and social, a lot of my friends are progressive and socially liberal, I've got some friends that aren't, mm-hmm. and I feel like they're more attuned to race than me, mm-hmm. and I feel some shame that if they hear me be vulnerable right now, that I'm behind in knowing what to say and what not to say, and first time I'm having conversations oh, wow. like this, and that I think that speaks to the, systemically to the whole problem. It's a tribal issue Yes, that I'm scared of what people will think and what would happen to me if I, anyway. Yeah. And that, that just keeps you in, that, that does nothing for you. It doesn't serve you. It just no, keeps it doesn't you serve anybody, but nope. I think that's what keeps people from having this conversation Yeah, is that, that ultimately that's the fear it comes back to. 
so that's interesting. So the fear was was from the conservative side and the progressive side. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear of not being woke enough <laughs> and the fear of, yes. of right. being too uh, a liberal, right? Because in some of those conservative settings, it's like it, you are demonized for being a Democrat oftentimes, oh, yeah. especially if, you, if it's conservative Christianity. Democrats are baby killers. They're abortionists right. and they're all going right. to hell, right? Like you can't, you know, screw the fact that the majority of black Christians are Democrats <laughs> and Protestants, right? But like... You know, and then on the progressive side, it's like, well, how dare you even like talk to those people? <laughs> you know, sometimes like it's the yeah. Yeah. so I think there's the majority of Americans, 42 percent who identify as independent, you know, maybe have a mix of both feel in that weird, tough spot of like, how do we move forward without leaving anyone yet at the same time holding to what we sh- should be progressive values that we all should share? Right. Like liberal is not a dirty word. I mean, liberalism in the, you know, probably the classic definition of it is what democracy is, you know, like, uh, and so why, how can we hold the best of the past and, and move forward even, even politically? And I think that's why we're stuck. That's where, why we're in the not we're in. I think that's why 81% of white evangelicals voted the way they voted. Mm -hmm. Um, partially because they have no experience with people of other color and experiences because they would have looked at that and said, that's inappropriate. That's wrong to talk about people that way. Like you don't talk about Mexicans that way. You don't talk, you don't dehumanize people in order to get your political point of cr- across. Mm. You could have actually built, Donald Trump could have built bridges to the black community way early on mm. and said, hey, I want to fight for your jobs. I want to fight. He could have preached economic nationalism to, to black people in a way to include them in his base where black people prior didn't have a ton of like animosity towards him, didn't mm. have really any. And he literally went out of his way to alienate yeah. for this base that he was courting. And I think that can't begun to be part of the problem, not to dive too deep into politics. Yeah. But I mean, so now we're in this this spot where, you know, some people feel very justified in voting the way they voted and, and the way things are going. And then you have a lot of people that are discontented. And it seems like a lot of the people that are discontented look like me <laughs> and are very black and brown and, and progressive. And we're stuck. stumble through and have conversations be like, I don't, I don't know. And I think the more we have conversations like this, because when these conversations have happened is when I start realizing my privilege that I wasn't even aware I had. Mm. And I am the most privileged white girl that ever was, but I didn't, I wasn't aware, you know, because like, I remember, so grew up, went to high school. I had more black friends in high school than white friends, but I didn't go home and have like dinner with my parents, black friends. You know, it was still very separated. And I remember when I was in college going, it was so deeply, I mean, I can remember exactly how I feel. I can smell it. Going to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And I remember it hitting me so hard. I remember walking through and I just, I was crying so hysterically. And I kept just saying, I'm so sorry. Mm. Like I knew that I was a part of it. It was mm. the first time that I understood that I was a part of the problem for the first time in my life. Mm. I was probably 20 years old and I yeah. just was weeping. Mm. And I kept, and I remember my dad, like he was, he didn't know how to comfort me. Like my dad was pre- pretty progressive for yeah. being his age. And, you know, but he, he kept, he didn't know how to comfort me because he was like, 
what are you apologizing for? You know, I just kept weeping. Like I was just so devastated that I was a part of this, that my family's generation, my lineage and what, I mean, three years before I'm at a school that goes to dances where black people, you know, and you're like, it, that was the first time. And that's a beautiful grief to carry, right? Like uh, that there's a solidarity that white people can enter into and a grief to mourn the status quo, to mourn the history of what we've all come through. So there's a grief you can enter into. There's a period of mourning about the status quo the privilege that you might have in that status quo, your place in it. But there's nothing wrong with being who you are, being born the way you were born, the color of your skin. Like, white people have to understand there's nothing wrong with being white in terms of the color of your skin and and whatever cultural inheritance and legacy you have. It's what you do with that. Mm. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah, it's what you do with the privilege and the power. So. The repentance would say, and this is why I love, right, even some of those theology, old school words like repentance. Repentance is stop what you're doing and change directions. Mm. So I was maybe going in an ignorant direction where I was, I didn't realize I was privileged or didn't realize that I lived in a society that maybe favored me more than others. I can grieve that. And now you I can know. mourn it. I can, it's okay to feel bad because that is the conviction, but you don't then hate yourself because of it. Right. Um, you don't have to hate being white. You don't have to hate being your family. You don't have to hate where you come from. You just make a different choice. Now, what do you do with that? Now, what do I do? Yeah, that's right. I'm wondering with, because I know a lot of people on the other side of the aisle that are probably actively either very complicit or mm-hmm. even racist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if ignorant is the right word. I maybe I'm learning I'm, as I'm sitting here thinking it may be. Um, uneducated or uninformed, which I don't know that could. Yeah. Cause I, I teach people all the time on trauma informed care. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to move that into schools and other things. And in a way, a lot of trauma informed education and trauma sensitivity is relevant to this conversation. Absolutely. We almost need to be racially informed. Yes. And there Absolutely. needs to be a whole curriculum for people so that they're educated and informed, which creates empathy and understanding. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. I'm going to clap you on that. <laughs> but it's this right. is the conversation where I think white people need to have with other white people. Exactly. And I know there's a book, I haven't read it, but a lot of my uh, white friends have read a book called White Awake, which basically deconstructs privilege. Mm. Um, and a lot of them have sent me little screenshots from it uh, in terms of like things they're learning. Um, and so de- race has to be deconstructed. To be black in America, you it is a deconstruction pill already because yeah. you're the minority inside of a dominant culture. I was going to read uh, James Baldwin again. He talks about this, the feeling of cultural alienation. He says, uh, it comes as a great shock to discover that the flag that you have pledged allegiance has not pledged allegiance to you. Mm. It comes as a great shock. And he's speaking from the perspective of a, of a minority. It comes as a great shock to see Gary Cooper killing off the Indians. And although you're rooting for Gary Cooper, you realize that you are the Indian. Wow. And he was like being a little black kid watching that film going like, I'm rooting, you know, the, the Cowboys and the, the Indians. And then to come to that realization that I'm the Indians in this script. Mm-hmm. I'm not Gary Cooper. Like, yeah. and yeah. and that is what pe- minorities feel in this country that they realize is I'm the one that's yeah. being oppressed, and and what white people have to realize is I'm Gary Cooper in this sketch. <laughs> Even right. if I don't really want to be or mean to be, I, right. culturally, collectively, I am. Maybe yeah. I'm not individually. Maybe, but yeah. collectively, I am. 
I think that is so important. And I think also where what I want to be better at and what I've been seeking to do, like in the new year, Jed and I both bought Underground Railroad. It's a book that came out this last year. And we were reading at the same time. And I would just call him like weeping. Mm. And it's I just had not heard it through the narrative of a slave, Mm -hmm. like their journey. It was it gutted me. I, I It took me like weeks to recover after finishing it because it was just, it's a reality that I cannot comprehend. Mm. I can't even begin to understand or comprehend. I have no context. But isn't it powerful to put yourself in that place? That's what story does, right? In, yes. a, in a brilliant way. Art and film and books, they help us put ourselves in a different perspective of the story. Empathy. 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 Yeah. And that's what I'm kind of just piggybacking a lot of the things we're saying it's like i think as a white privileged person like curiosity and trying to learn Mm -hmm. as much as possible like because i will not i will never have that experience yeah but what is it to put my shoes in just even a tiny i'm not for one second saying i understand now Mm -hmm. because i will never understand yeah but to as much as possible to try to put myself like reading and being curious and asking questions of what other people's experience has been that don't Mm. look like me. Like that I feel like is where a shift can begin. And it is beginning. Yeah, People are doing it. I think we're living in one of the greatest awakenings, the most wrestling I've ever seen in regards to this. I mean, I'm 30, I'm about 34, about to be 35 my entire life. I've never seen Mm. the real genuine collective wrestling we're all doing right now Mm. and soul searching. And the confrontation that that's happening and the the social movements that are being birthed in the last five years are forcing this genuine confrontation like James Baldwin talked about that we haven't been willing to have. And people have to really see themselves in a different character of the script that we're all kind of playing a script that was handed to us. The Constitution is a script that was handed to us. And there's some things embedded in that script culturally that were passed down as well, too. And we have to deconstruct those things and, and take the best from the past and move forward to a better future. You know the difference between white evangelicalism and black Protestantism? It's where everyone places the emphasis. White Christianity views the gospel through the lens of Paul. Black Christianity views the gospel through the lens of Moses. Very different. Moses being the lens by which there's a people who are enslaved and oppressed. They cry out to God. God has heard their oppression he has heard their cries and has sent a deliverer who then speaks to pharaoh who's been exploiting these people and says let my people go and black christianity has always viewed the gospel through the lens and and the person of jesus through the lens of moses as the the deliverer the one who comes to set the captives free white christianity has constantly viewed themselves through the lens of paul they've all and they saw themselves as the chosen people of israel The thing that white Christianity has to realize is in the script, they are not Israel. They are Egypt. And if you think you're Israel, then you'll put the victimhood on yourself while you're being the oppressor. Which is often what happens in this conversation is this sense of white victimhood comes up of like, but you don't know. And how do you know? And the, the, the things that get embedded and those things have been passed down through religion, too. Mm-hmm. They've been passed down in church services. Mm-hmm. We're the people yeah. of God. We're called the, the you know, the colonialization that ha- happened, imperialism, like all those things are, have been through a wrong theological interpretation. Mm. And we're still playing that script out yeah. to this day. Mm. And so when we're talking about stories, putting ourselves in different positions, I think it, 
for the I think what white Christianity has to do is it has to start asking or putting itself in the story of Egypt and not trying to see itself as Israel. Mm-hmm. What you're trained when you grow up Christian to read the Bible is God loves me, you know, all these promises to Israel are for me. And then that feel that's how you become complicit and that's how you reinforce the status quo, not realizing you're being the oppressor, acting like the victim. Hmm. For all my Christians out there, if for that matters. Because <laughs> if you're not, that doesn't matter. But <laughs> That's powerful. Yeah. yeah. I could be wrong, but I saw you smiled and your face softened when you said, we live in a time now where at least things are starting to shift somewhat, where confrontation's happening. How does that support the pain you experienced or have experienced or continue to experience? Does it, do you feel like you're, some type of redemption is coming or do you feel hope or do you still feel pretty discouraged most days? I feel both. As a Christ follower, I feel like it's my duty in general to wrestle with grief and hope. I hold each in one hand always. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus embodied that actually. He embodied the prophets in the hopeful calls and the in the mourning and the laments of the way things are. And so I see a lot to be hopeful of. I see a lot to be happy about. I see a lot of awakening and enlightenment happening. I see a lot of inclusion happening. I see a lot of um, conversations that are hard that are happening. Now, what we do with those is mm. still up to us. Mm. It doesn't necessitate that everything will change or even change quickly. I had to reach this point as I weighed heavily on these things and read and thought and sat and that I might not see it in my lifetime either. Right. Mm-hmm. That we were given the dream that, oh, civil rights came. It's going to be good. And, you know, they broke through. And, and now we're just living in the after the fruits of this labor, not realizing, oh, we were still part of the labor as well. And that I might live the rest of my life and not see the day that I dream of in my head. That it might be for my children or our children's children. What would that day look like? The picture I see in my head um, is a day where every single person in our country, I can't speak for the world, in our country, in light of our history, in light of our innovation, our creativity, where every single child that is born has the ability to soar, to succeed. They're invested in emotionally, mentally, spiritually, economically. That no matter what your race, religion, color, creed, that this is, you're a citizen, and you have a hope and a future here. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the general promise of this land and what democracy is. That I think we should just live up to the ideal of democracy. That we should, every citizen has that right. And actually, the ones that aren't citizens, we need to be compassionate about, for we were once not citizens. That's right. We were once strangers and foreigners. Yes. Um, I'm emotional because I, I feel like I've just heard something as important as some of the speeches that... Uh, one of my heroes, Martin Luther King, I, hmm. that, that was poignant. Mm-hmm. I hope a lot of people get to hear that. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to tell as many people as I can. <laughs> I think it's the dream of the prophets. Like when I read the Old Testament and I see what some of the prophets talked about in terms of, you know, laying down the swords and turning the swords into plowshares, that there's this dream in the lion will lay down with the lamb um, and we will study war no more. Like I I see in the prophets a vision of a future reality where mankind lives in peace and mankind can live in justice and equity with all people. 
you know, not that there wouldn't be conflict. I think conflict is just part of part of it. Not, you know, this isn't utopia, but I do see this call in the prophets to rebuild cities and raise up former foundations and ancient ruins. And where I think there's been devastation in our land, even in our cities economically, like I think of Cleveland, I think of Detroit, I think of even uh, Western Pennsylvania and some of these cities who have really gone through economic downturn, I see such new innovation that can be reborn. I think clean energy can change the world. I think we can build sustainable cities. I think we can end poverty. I think we can uh, take care of every child. I don't think, a, I don't think, I think every child can have a home. Mm. I don't think foster care has to be a thing, <laughs> you know, that every child can be adopted into a family, no matter what that family looks like. I think we can re-envision a different future for ourselves. I don't think we have to keep playing to the same old scripts and repeating right. the same old cycles and the same old lies and the same old... Telling the same freaking story. The same story. And we, mm. we don't have to believe right. what is embedded in the script. We can change the script. That just feels hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. I, I heard a certain story all yeah. around. You know, and thank God, the universe, God, Jesus, what some, you know, yeah. I was able to have people in my life that told me a different story. And I was curious enough to listen and to ask questions. And I think curiosity is so fundamental. Like change happens when you're curious. Yeah. Because when you ask, let's be curious. Like let's ask questions. Whenever I know something to be true, my, I literally get tingles down my leg and it's just truth. Like mm. it's the truth. Like we, if we would be willing to have uncomfortable conversations and ask questions of people that don't think, look, talk just like us, where, what can happen and where you can hear a different story. Like I, it's like. You're fuller, you're richer, yes. you're more, you might have, you might feel like you're leading into the unknown. Like I, I was talking to a friend sort of about this recently and they were like, well, if we deconstruct that, then everything's going to unravel. And I said, "Good." In, in regards to our faith. Yeah. I said, I hope so. Yeah. I was like, did you, did you think that signing up for Jesus, God meant that you're going to have all the answers to everything? No. I hope not. Because this thing is a mystery and actually enter into the mystery. That's right. Enter into the unknown, enter in, yes. be curious, yes. ask those questions, listen to someone that you don't normally listen to yes. and, and actually believe them. You know this yes. working with trauma, right? Like when you're listening to someone's trauma story, you are not sitting here going, did everything they say, exa- was it exactly accurate? Did the rape happen just like that? You're just like, just get it out. Yeah. Tell me. What's hold going space on? For them. Hold space. We don't hold space for each other. Right. We don't hold court for each other. We That's don't. Right. We're not big enough on the inside anymore. Mm-hmm. We used to be big enough to at least. I don't know if it's the attention span thing. I don't know if it's the internet. I don't know what. But we don't hold court for each other. That's we right. don't air grief anymore. We just complain or bitch or outrage, but we don't hold grief. And there's something we have to grow bigger on the inside again. We have to focus on our interior cosmos and and literally hold space for multiple universes to exist in, inside right. of us and also around us. That maybe on your planet, things work a little different <laughs> well, than I, this planet. I, I think it's important to, it, it, for some reason, for me, it, this all started shifting. Kind of the paradigm uh, took a turn left when I got outside of my reality. And yeah. it was a few years ago, I traveled and with my buddy Bob, and we went all over the Middle East, and mm. I put myself in position of a minority. Mm-hmm. And it changes something. Yeah. And for some reason, I had more courage once in that position to have conversations than 
it's the powerless thing. You put yourself in a situation where you were powerless, where you weren't the minority. You yeah. went to a part of the world where you were not the majority. Yes. And you were a minority. And that, that changes things. Yes, yep. it does. Travel yep. kills prejudice. That's right. Mark yeah, Twain. I actually think so. But I want to encourage more people to, to have this conversation here. It feels important. Um, I feel a sense of, and I had no idea we were going to do that. I didn't, had no idea I was had planned to lean in. I think I would affirm you for holding the space for me to be able to have an uncomfortable conversation. Oh, absolutely. And I, and you know what, this can come out and people can translate it however they want. And, uh, but all I care about right now is looking into the eyes of you and feel like I know you deeper as a human being. Mm. And I feel like I'll walk out of here more informed, Mm. more understanding, more empathetic. I love that. We're winning if we're doing that. All of us, Mm -hmm. we're winning if we can do that for one another. Yes. Well, I know, I know, uh, this has been, um, important and, and amazing so far. I also know there's a lot of other parts to you. Uh, you've, I don't know if you organically moved into being a voice for this, but I'm glad you did. I, mm-hmm. there's other things I'd love. I hope you have political aspirations because I think we need people like you and <laughs> le- right. I'm serious. I think we need people like you in leadership. The message of hope you just stated is missing. Mm-hmm. It's a missing part of the narrative out in our political culture and sphere Absolutely. right now. So I'll get behind you. I want to be your campaign. <laughs> I want to do that. But, um, I also know you're, um, uh, wildly talented as a musician. And I just wanted to give you a minute to, I know you've been working on a new project. Yeah. Two years. Two, two, three years in the making. Actually, when I walked into the studio that we're, we're recording here in Los Angeles, I recorded uh, a, a big chunk of the record, Two Houses Down. Crazy. <laughs> and I haven't been over here when we did that two years ago, when right. we were actually in those sessions, when we started. Uh, and so I was driving down the street. I'm like, oh, this all looks so familiar. <laughs> why, why do I know this? Why do I know this? And it's one of my good friends. He's a producer. had a spot right down here. And so my record is called Cosmos with a K. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a bit of me going through a spiritual deconstruction, reconstruction mm. of uh, asking these questions after Trayvon Martin got shot and starting. This is to me how I, how I moved into that space was asking hard questions of myself, asking what experiences that even I as, as a black man was denying. Mm. There were things from my past that I just weren't willing to look at or once I left Detroit, I just forgot about. Mm. Certain realities I forgot about or when racism would happen, just like, oh, okay. You know, like, yeah. and then over time realizing I have to be truthful. And this is probably why I'll never run for politics because I think in my core, at least right now, this could change, but I, 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 I hope this doesn't come across grandiose because I actually don't mean it to be some, something very significant. I'm more interested in being a prophet in terms of, be, and when I say prophet, I mean truth teller, one who holds grief and hope. I think that's why an artist works for me very well being a songwriter and a singer as a way to tell the truth, as a way to talk about my experiences with God and with other people. As a writer, I find more uh, versus, you know, the opinions of man, I find myself needing to be more aligned spiritually and practically. Uh, That's probably why I can't, I can never run for politics. Uh, I'm just called to be a prophet who tells the truth. But don't you think we're missing prophecy and artistry in politics? You know what? I think we need to listen to them. Um, I don't know if prophets and artists need to run government. I do think it takes a level of uh, statesmanship, so to speak, um, and a level of discourse that I don't think prophets in their trueness. You can be, maybe you can have a prophetic spirit or edge on you, but I I don't think if you are, 
And I, I hope people understand what I mean by that. I do think there are certain spiritual qualities and callings and giftings that we all have. I don't even think that's a Christian thing. I actually think you can be a prophet and be and be an iman. You know, like you can be yeah, yeah. a prophet. Oh, you know, like there's like Islam has a prophetic tradition. You know, Buddhism has a prophetic tradition. Christianity has a prophetic tradition. So I think if you are a a, a prophet, prophet, then no. But I do think statesmen and political leaders need to listen to artists. They need to listen to prophets. Because I actually think the artists are going to lead the way. At, in this juncture where we're at, artists are going to lead the way. Poets are going to lead the way. Mm-hmm. For thousands of years, literally, theologians and lawyers have been dictating theology. And I actually think now it's time for poets and artists that's, to that's, yeah to, to That's to better dictate. said than I said it, but I think the political sphere and leadership needs to be deconstructed. I agree. So Cosmos is a record for me talking about our interior cosmos and how we often go through seasons of shadow and light, uncertainty, uncertainty, knowing and unknowing, and uh, doubt and separation into connection and enlightenment and awakening. And those are some of the themes that my re- my album wrestles with um, from a Christian standpoint, but it's not even really a Christian record. It's more of a pop record that has a lot of trap and orchestral tones to it. It's very weird. Yeah. I don't. There's no record like it. Trap. It has some trap and it. Sign me up. Oh yeah, they got some trap songs. <laughs> I have some great like guest features on. I have propagandas on it. Oh sweet. Uh, so... Yeah, Lisa Gunger, um, Amanda Cook, Stephanie Gretzinger. Oh, she's my friend. She is. Yes. Who? Steph or Amanda? Amanda. That's right. She, is she in Nashville? She was. Oh. Yeah. She. I haven't been there in a minute, so she might still be there. But oh. I. She is so special. She is a gift to oh the world. Oh my gosh. We're we're twinsies. Really? Uh, oh similar my gosh. spirits. Similar I spirits. Love it. Kinfolk. Uh, um. Yeah. She's on the record, and Tripoli is on the record too. We got great people. But um. I love that. When's it coming out, and how can we get it? So the record will be coming out uh, spring, early summer. Okay. So I don't have an exact date right now, but yeah, spring, early summer. Know, so I don't know when this podcast released. Yeah. Well, What's but, the best uh, way to stay connected with you? It's- Instagram and Twitter are probably my biggest platforms. Facebook as well. So on Instagram, I'm William I. Matthews, Perfect. at mention. Twitter, it's at mention William Matt 22. And Facebook, just William Matthews Music. And you'll you'll find me. And I have a website, WilliamMatthewsMusic.com. I speak and travel. I'm doing a lot of universities this fall. I love um, that. Yeah. And That's hopefully awesome. I'm going to do a house show tour this summer. We're planning that right now. Let us know if you come to Nashville. We I will. We'll be there with bells on and bringing yeah, the crew. We, we can host yeah. you. That'd We'd love fun. to host oh, you. Oh, that would be really fun. Thank Heck you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, okay. Well, this is something that we like to do. So tell us. <gasps> <laughs> oh my God. Tell everyone what you're looking at. Oh, this was the last thing I ever thought you would just. Wow. <sighs> so, this is my family. They showed me a picture of my family. I'm probably two years old here, maybe. Mm. Yeah. So, this reminds me of Detroit. It uh, it's the eighties. It's probably eighty four, eighty five. My mom loved to dress me and my sister up, <laughs> like for photo shoots. And so this one, we're in like little sailor outfits with like red ties. <laughs> <laughs> my sister Erica, um, my mom Elaine, and my dad William. I'm actually William Matthews the third. Oh yeah. So my grandfather, and then my dad, and then me. So I I go by sometimes the handle WM three like. Because uh, William mm-hmm. Matthews III. <sighs> I don't know. We were just a working class family from Detroit. My dad mm-hmm. used to work for IBM fixing computers. Uh, yeah. My mom worked for the state of Michigan. She did social work. And I don't know. 
speaks to happier times. Yeah. Back when we were all together and all, both sides of my family, you know, lived within 20 minutes of each other. We mm-hmm. all went to church every Sunday together. Mm-hmm. Grandma's house, fried chicken on Sunday morning or Sunday after church. Oh. My mom was a choir director. My dad would preach. Um, he was like an associate pastor at the time when we took this at Southwestern Church of God on the west, south side of Detroit. Yeah. What is something that little boy needed to hear that he may not have heard growing up? You know, I would actually say at this time, I had everything I needed. Mm. I had my family. So my dad was a dreamer. He is a dreamer. And my mom's very pragmatic. And I feel like I had a good balance of both. Like my dad is idealistic to the moon and the sky and back. We used to watch Star Trek together. I think that's where my utopian dreams come from. Uh, <laughs> a galaxy and a, and a, you know, where everyone, no more poverty, no, whatever. Uh, he always, they always told me anything was possible. Mm. I actually grew up believing that. Wow. Even in the face of racial trauma and terror, which existed, I felt like I had a family that believed in the American dream that actually said, this is what this place is about and we can work and make it better. Like my parents gave themselves in service of others. My dad was mentoring people in Teen Challenge who were addicted to drugs and would bring homeless people around. And, you know, like I remember once we were in the, 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 the yard playing and this guy was walking down the street and he's just cursing up a storm. And my dad's like, don't say that in front of my kids or I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> guy keeps cursing my dad literally drags him in the house Stop. washes his mouth out with soap stop it absolutely oh <laughs> I, I don't know like i've i don't know i felt like we were we were the huxtables we were you know we were just another normal american family hmm. knowing what you know now what message would you have for him at that age knowing what he's what the world's going to tell him don't let anyone cause you to hide your voice Yes. Come on. Ugh. Hey, tattoo that on my body. <laughs> I'm giving that some applause. Yes. Yes. Don't hide your voice. Yeah. They're gonna want you to. They're gonna pressure you to. Mm-hmm. They're gonna. They're gonna steal your joy. I went through years where I felt like my joy was stolen. I've struggled with mm-hmm. depression off and on through the years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't till I became aware that the world wasn't necessarily suited for people like me. Mm-hmm. But good God, we need you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We need you. <laughs> Thank you. This was way more emotional. I'm like surprised I didn't fully cry here, but <laughs> this is way more emotional this than is, I. Um, I feel very honored that we got to share this space with you today. And thank you for letting us be curious and stumble <laughs> our way through, you know, our unknowing. And you have covered it with so much grace and given us um, so much truth that we needed to hear. And that I'm so excited for our audience to hear. Yeah. And, this has been so special and it was even beyond and you know how excited I was. So thank she's been you. talking about this one. For Truly. A while. You were on my top list. I'm uh, like who I wanted to interview. Yeah. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Is there anything that you didn't get to share that you want to, you'd like us to know? I think we have to remember that we're all one body. We're part of one ecosystem, mm-hmm. one planet, And everyone is part of that. Everything matters in that. I think we're all part of Christ's body. 
I think that's what the whole metaphor was about. I don't think it was about sectarian religion. I think it was about oneness. So it's time for us to not dismember the body, but remember the body. Hmm. And to listen to each other. Hmm. And to listen to the parts of the body that we don't like or agree with. Hmm. I think it's time. I think if humanity can do that. We're good. I, I think we're good. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love that. Beautifully said. Yes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for the grace you brought and the grace you delivered. I love my friends and I love the people I've gotten to be around these last, particularly 14, 15 years. This photo, though, reminds me of that feeling that a lot of my friends don't know my family mm. or have never asked about my family or have never asked about where I grew up and what that was like. And I always felt like I was living in like somebody else's world mm. um, where my family is not necessarily viewed as the quintessential American Midwestern family because of the way we look or our culture or whatever. Um, so it's hurtful. Like when I hear people say things like, you know, the, the real Americans, like the real America is somehow the white farmer from Kansas and not the, the black family from Detroit. I, I think it's a problem. Like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't think we get to decide what is real America and what isn't. We're all part of this. Right. And I think in the last five, six years, what has been the most hurtful has been that dehumanizing thing that says I'm not fully human, but I'm also not fully American because it doesn't look this way. And if anything in the political climate needs to change, I think it's that, the way we speak of the other. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, truthfully, we all care just as much on the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. We all actually care about this country, and we care about the dream and the hope and the freedom that exists here. And all we're really asking for is more of that. Mm -hmm. So when I look at my family in this picture, I, I look at the people that often my white friends don't ask me about, mm -hmm. or the people they can't visualize as from my tribe and where I come from and the songs we sang and the movies we watched and the, mm -hmm. the way we played baseball and the way we, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I get no, a lot of sense. Does. It makes total sense. Would you be open to reintroducing them to us by name? Yeah. So we, we know them. Totally. This is my dad, William Franklin Matthews, the mm second, -hmm. my mother, Elaine Johnson, now Elaine Matthews. Um, my older sister Erica she's five years older than me Erica Matthews now Erica Warren um, and there's me William Matthews III and also I have another sister uh, who wasn't born yet uh, her name is Denise Matthews um, she's five years younger than me and um, we're the Matthews hope to get hope to get to meet them someday thank you <gasps> too much heart make up fake love make them all Someone take off your mask It's nice to me Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP Hallucinate, and 
I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon, and you should check them out. They're amazing. Definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing, and you're going to love them as much as we do. If you want to learn more about the Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guests. And please follow us on Instagram at The Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.